On today's episode of the Multiply Podcast, we're going to be talking about heart idols. What are they and how do they affect you? Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome to or welcome back to the Multiply Podcast. My name is Jared. My name is David. Here we are. It's May. May is May upon the us. May fourth be with you. Oh man, I'll tell you what. My birthday's coming soon. Mm. Spring is in the air. Mm. My pool opens today. Mm. Whoa, God is so good. <laughs> if you didn't believe in God up to this point, I think I think you're convinced now. Am I right? I, it seems like a strong apologetic. I've also I got mean, a dark roast Starbucks coffee in my hand, thanks yeah. to my good friend Dave Hurtwick who purchased it for me. I mean, come on. You're very welcome. You can you, tell me God's not real? You're my favorite person to bring a drink to because all you like is just... Straight coffee. <laughs> it is the cheapest it's thing you like can buy. Forty nine cents, <laughs> and then like all the lattes are like eight fifty. <laughs> well, I love a latte, but I do this to save you money because I care more about your children than I do about a latte. So, I want them to have a future. You know, that's big of you. Speaking of big of you, <laughs> should we give a little update on the weigh loss challenge, which officially today was ended? The final weigh in, and Jared and I tied for the win. We came back. Can you believe it? We passed Mark Freeman and Jason Foster, who got really fat these last two weeks. <laughs> and, and you and I gained no weight. In fact, we lost. I mean, it's almost now nah, we we should stop this. We can't do this. We, we can't lie to you guys. Congrats to Mark. 44 pounds. He lost 44, 44 pounds. pounds. And that was without amputation, <laughs> which was his original I mean, strategy. He says he didn't buy worm on the internet. We're not really sure <laughs> if he continues to lose. Or he has to go into surgery soon. We'll know why, but yeah, he, he did crush it. He man. didn't call his weight loss strategy the Creed weight loss strategy. <laughs> so there might have been a tapeworm involved. Now Mark won. Jason came in second. Jared came in third, and I came in dead last. However, I kind of feel like <laughs> why do you guys losing, say however right after that? Well, because I feel like losing a competition that's about losing. Am I not the winner? You're you're the biggest loser. I'm the. Yeah. Yeah, which it w- on it was a good thing on I that show. I lost the least, but I lost the most. Well, here's the thing, okay? <laughs> As of this morning, I'm I'm down almost 25 pounds. You're down how much? 140. <laughs> <laughs> Divided by 10. No, You're, I only lost like 15 pounds. But I mean, 15 pounds 15 is better pounds. than no pounds. All right. Mark lost, I mean, he lost a he lost, he lost yeah. a ten year old, and Jason. I don't know what he lost, but he 30 lost plus thirty something pounds. pounds. Maybe something. Like so that. at the end of the day, it's like, hey, we all kind of won because yeah. we're lighter than we were. And those guys who lost that much, they look kind of gross now, anyway. They really do. So we made and we made the they right were call. on the brink of death. I mean, we in a lot of ways we saved their lives by yeah. not trying as oh, hard, yeah. so they felt like they had a chance of winning. You Mark's know? weight loss. Effort started in the ICU <laughs> where he had been hospitalized for for uh, morbid obesity. So, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, the, I guess the lesson here is you got to help your friends. Mm. <laughs> I agree. I but, agree. So I know everybody's been waiting for that. There's the update. And, um, and now it's the weight gain challenge. So I'm really about to. <laughs> I'm hoping to make, continue the weight loss, yeah. but, uh, you know. Well, the weather nicer, we're more active, we'll be outside, going to be in your pool this evening, it sounds like, so we'll, we'll be losing some weight. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, hey guys, we're excited to, uh, I'm really excited to talk about the topic we're going to hit actually for the next two episodes, because this particular topic and this concept has been a, 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 such a game changer for me personally, in my own 
my own walk with God and my own understanding of myself and 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 sin, but also in my ministry and how I it really shifted how I discipled the people that I was discipling and how I preached and taught. Like um, I don't want to overbuild it too late, but to me it. This idea was, if I had to point to like what was one of the biggest game changers for you in understanding Christianity, understanding the gospel and how it's fleshed out, this was it. Mm. And um, and and I think I think because of that, this is one of the most helpful. Could be one of the most helpful concepts for um, if you're a pastor for pastors, but even if you're not, if you're a follower of Jesus, for you to understand and and. Um, and grasp in your own personal life, like it was that life changing for me, and I think it could be for you guys too. And and I'm, I have a lot of con- conversations about this stuff, but I I realize because I'm always like, hey, I think we've talked about it on the podcast, and we kind of have referenced it, but we've never really broken it down. And so, um, so I've, I'm constantly looking for a resource to point people towards, and I'm like, dude, we need to we need to really break this down in detail so that we can have it out there, and our millions of uh, followers could you know have a place to go. So. Anyway, I'm really excited today. We're going to talk about the idea of the four um, main heart idols in every person's life, and we're going to meld that into kind of discipleship and um, our definition of discipleship when it comes to the gospel, and we're going to talk about sin and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, Dave, why don't you start us off by re-kind of iterating our definition of discipleship, and then we'll flow into how idolatry fits into that. Yeah, so... When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about um, moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of our lives, changing what we love and how we live. So there's a movement, right? It's progressive, it's ongoing, and it's a heart issue. It starts with unbelief and moves to belief in the gospel, Um, but it's not just a one-time thing. It's in every area of our lives. So there's constantly new areas of our lives, new issues, new relationships, new opportunities, new challenges in which we need to exercise deeper gospel belief, which changes what we love, which changes how we live. And the sequence of that matters. We can't change, and we'll get to this, but it's dangerous to try to change how you live without first changing what you love. And so in terms of heart idols, um, what you love is such a key phrase, right? Because idols ultimately are things that we love in and trust in and treasure more than Jesus. Things that we look to to do for us what Christ actually has already accomplished for us and wants to do for us. And so when you think of idolatry as a metaphor for sin, and there's multiple metaphors for sin that we could use, but idolatry is one that has gained a lot of traction in our lives and in this culture and society today, why do you think this particular understanding of sin is so important? And how do you think it sort of strategically speaks to where people are at today? Yeah. Well, I mean, first reason I think it's so important is because it's true and it works. And and one of the best examples of this is it's biblical. Like if you, if you look through the narrative of the entire Old Testament, mm-hmm. you see a, a people group who are being formed by God to be the demonstration to the world of who he really is, the one true God. Mm -hmm. And um, all around them are cultures who they're called to be a counterculture who are worshiping other gods and looking to other things outside of him. And the the issue that the Israelites have is that they begin to adopt and worship the idols of these other nations. But if you study those idols and those gods that they're worshiping, all of those gods are connected to things that we worship today. 
It's the very same thing. You've got you've got the gods who will provide more offspring, which of course in that culture meant you uh, you got the approval of the people around you. It meant more affluence because you had more sure. power, more, more kids. It meant more power. Like yep. so, all of the stuff that we chase today. It's the same stuff they were chasing back then. It just wasn't chased exactly the same way. Mm. But all throughout the Old Testament, it's this language of idolatry that's used. And God has such this issue with the nation of Israel when they begin to practice idolatry because ultimately it wasn't just a physical practice of it. It was their heart looking for something that God had already given them in the covenant. Mm -hmm. And we so, so when you... When you have that lens, right, it's all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see it. And then, of course, Jesus comes on the scene. And in the New Testament, you see him continue to ad- address those type of things. Now, they don't use the same exact language as the Old Testament, but the concept is still the same. And a lot of what Jesus says is stuff like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And a lot of times what he's doing is he's exposing the heart idolatry mm-hmm. that's taking place in people's lives. So the first thing I would say is, is biblical. Like, this is not just a... A, a concept that that someone created and goes like, "Yeah, this is cool. This will work." Like, no, no, no. This is the theme that we see all throughout the Bible. Well, even in right in the beginning, right when when the enemy comes, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he tempts them with this idea of like, "You will be like God, mm. and you'll know what God knows." And right off the bat, there's this replacing of God with yourself. Yeah, right. And so even the initial fall is got its roots. In yes, rebellion, um, but also in in a sense. Now they might not have used this language, but idolatry. There was a way in which they yeah. wanted to replace God with themselves. In fact, there's a famous quote that says, "Sin is the history of man substituting himself for God," and of course, salvation is the history of God substituting Himself for man. And so, in the Old Testament, you have this vivid imagery of idolatry, which, as we've talked about before, idolatry was such a problem for the people of Israel because it was connected to their identity. Yeah and to their activity as the people of God. So they would lose a sense of who they are or were, but also why God had called them to be a blessing to those same nations that they were losing their identity and becoming like, right? And it was rarely replacing Jehovah or Yahweh completely with these other gods like Baal. It was always a form of syncretism where we're going to pray to our God, but when a famine comes and Baal is the God of the harvest, We'll kind of hedge our bets, yep. and we'll place a little bit of our trust. And then when we think of it that way, all of a sudden we realize this is us yeah. today. Yes, we sing songs about Jesus. Yes, we trust in Jesus. But when bad news comes, when things don't seem to be going well, and we can't see what God is doing, we may start to shift our trust and allegiance to other things just with the hope, maybe this is what I'm looking for. Right. Yeah, and I and I would—so when I— when I view the meta narrative of scripture, I view it through the lens of identity and mission. And so what I would say is that all of humanity is in pursuit of identity. And another way to put identity would be maybe be a sense of value and worth, right? Like what what gives you when you get up in the morning, what makes you feel like you're worth living out your day? And all of humanity is pursuing this sense of identity. And we're all looking to uh, different things. And, and the mission of our lives, outside of Jesus, the mission of our lives is to find identity. Mm-hmm. And people will spend their entire life looking for things to find identity in, right? Um, idolatry fits in in that the way that we often find identity is through worship of these idols. Sure. 
So we look to an idol to give us a sense of identity, and we'll spend our whole life chasing it. And sometimes those idols will shift as our life changes, you know, once you have kids, and then once your kids get older, and then maybe a job changes or a relationship, whatever. But we'll spend our whole life chasing these idols, and we'll break down what these idols are in more detail. But the mission of our life, all mm-hmm. of our lives, is about finding identity. And so with the nation of Israel, with the, with, the, with the biblical narrative, you see God coming in and going, no, 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 I'm giving you identity that you can't earn and you don't need to be afraid of losing. It's, it's, it's my covenant with you, right, with Abraham. And now your mission is not to get identity. Your mission is to help the world discover their identity in me. But to your point, when you forget your identity— you sacrifice your mission. Yeah, There's no potency anymore. So the nation of Israel, that was their story. As they're worshiping other idols, they're forgetting their identity, their covenant, and therefore their mission of, of showing the world who God was is now being weakened and lessened. And ultimately, Jesus becomes the only one who truly lives in his identity and truly accomplishes his mission. Now we're invited to do that with him. Yeah. You know, in Psalm 115, Eight, it says that everyone who makes idols becomes like them. And I think that's what you were just were saying, is that whatever you, um, J.K., or what's his name, um, Smith, anyway, the guy who wrote You Are What You Love, James K. Smith, yeah, you know, that title, You Are What You Love, yep. or as Paul says in Second Corinthians 3.18, you become what you behold, right? Mm. So Psalm 115.8 says, everyone who makes idols, they they become just like them. And so, yeah, that's the connection between idolatry and identity. Whatever you worship most, you actually become in the process. You, you turn into that thing in a sense. Yeah. Uh, that's becomes the thing in which you, re- you measure yourself by and, and what you're pursuing and chasing after. And throughout the old Testament, the prophets were primarily rebuking Israel for two things, idolatry, um, idolatry, but also injustice, right? So the way in which they responded to God and the way in which they treated each other. Yeah. And of course those are connected as well, but, Idols were always sort of poked fun at by the prophets as being mute, deaf, dumb. You have to carry your idols. Your idol can't carry you. And in a, in a way, as we give ourselves to other things, to, to, to lesser things, we lose our voice. We lose our ability to see. We lose our ability to hear, right? We become like our idols. Yeah. And, and that's what happens. We lose our mission. Um, to, to bring it into the New Testament, you mentioned the metaphor, the language of idolatry is not as front um, it's not as it's not as much in the front in the in the New Testament. It's not as clear, but there is plenty of um, directives in the epistles on flee from idolatry and and then specifically there's a there's a word that's used in the New Testament a lot, which is in the King James is translated I think lust, um, but it's the Greek word epithemia, which is a desire and it's a strong desire and and, and actually in in some of the more modern translations I think it's translated sinful desires. Yeah, the problem with that language is that we often think, well, that means you desire sinful things. Right. That's not what epithemia means. It's not the object of the desire that makes it sinful. It's the amount of the desire. It's mm. an out-of-order desire. It's a controlling desire. And and right there, we're back to idolatry, yeah. right? Anything you have to have has you and has power and control over you. So in, so in, in the next episode, we're going to actually get into like four specific examples of heart idols and, and what that looks like in our life. But just to keep moving forward with this conversation, in your experience as a pastor, um, even just as a disciple, as a dad, as a husband, um, understanding sin in this way, how has it affected you? How has it helped you? How has it strengthened you? How has it changed the way that you make disciples? Yeah, it's changed everything. I cannot o- overstate that because 
all of my life, I grew up in the church, and I had I have wonderful Christian parents. Um, I was forced to go to youth group all through youth. Like, you know, um, that was my life. It was Wednesday night church, Sunday night church, Sunday morning church. Um, <laughs> Did and you I, have Saturday night prayer? No, thank God. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> I didn't have as bad as you. Um, <laughs> or as good. And I and I was allowed to watch TV like you were Like out. Little House on the Prairie? Or other stuff, too? I, yeah, some other stuff. What? Yeah, I know. Um, but... My whole understanding, even and even, so I, I graduated high school. I went to Bible College, Central Bible College, which is also where your your dad graduated from. Yeah, and my mom. Oh, your mom too. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, I I started full time pastoral ministry, and I and I would say probably I was doing that for five years hmm. before this realization came. Before that, my concept of sin was almost entirely behavioral. It was sin is bad things that you do, and maybe I, I would have extended to say, and also could be bad thoughts, right? It's bad thing, bad things that I think or bad things that I do. And so the primary function of being a Christian and pursuing holiness was to act more like Jesus. That's how I would have defined it. But the shift that happened was I realized what was happening when I was sinning was not that I was doing bad things but that I was putting my hope in the wrong things or I was putting my hope in things outside of Christ. And therefore that manifested sometimes in bad behavior, but also sometimes manifested in quote unquote good behavior, mm-hmm. which was equally as sinful. Hmm. So what it did is it actually showed me that I was way more sinful than I ever realized before. <laughs> um, and so when you start to think of sin as not primarily a behavior issue, but of a worship issue and, a, and, a, and as an idol issue, I started to see some of these primary idols emerge in my heart. And I realized, oh my goodness, I've got all these different behaviors, some good and some bad, but they're all linked to basically the same idols. And this is what, this is where I'm going back to. And so it could be anything from when I preach sermons, what am I, I'm looking for something from people. I'm hoping to get something that I, that I, that I only could get from God. Right. Or, when I'm doing other, you know, when I'm telling a lie or speaking to my wife in a, in a way that I shouldn't or yelling at my kids like happened Sunday and I had to apologize. Like, so whatever the behavior is, right, it's always that was, linked. That was yesterday for those of you that are keeping score. That was yesterday. <laughs> I had to publicly apologize to my son. Um, but all these all these behaviors, good and bad, were all linked to these idols. And and what I realized is if I if I didn't get to the root of the idol, if I didn't expose that... I could change my behavior, but I was never changing my heart. I was never really actually moving closer to trusting and worshiping in Jesus in every area of my life. And so the more I dug into that and more I realized it was like this self-awareness that came about in my own heart, but also it changed the way that I taught and preached and helps other people discover that. So what about you? I mean, same question to you. What's this, what's this look like for you? Yeah, well, I've never had to... Uh, I've never yelled at my kid, so I can't relate to that part right. of your story. Right. But, um, of course, I've had to apologize publicly. By the way, if you ever really want to publicly apologize, I'll give you the mic on a Sunday morning. Well, Would I you... only yelled at him in front of my family, so I uh, figured it was good enough to just... Well, just, you know, just, just <laughs> as an example. <laughs> to be fair, in the church parking lot, he did open his car door incredibly fast, <laughs> slammed into the car next to us, and left a massive dent. So, I mean... Yeah. Am I justified in that? I don't know. And that person graciously forgave him. So then you felt guilty like you had to also. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a similar story. Actually, it's, it's it's sort of eerily similar timeline and everything. 
so I'm not going to retell my story because it's really a lot like yours. But um, I, I remember beginning to listen to some people who preach the gospel in a way that that began to tear down my self-righteousness, like expose it mm. and show me that even all the things I had done in my life that would seem like they'd go on my resume of righteousness were were often motivated by um, self-righteousness, wanting to prove myself or, or self-preservation, wanting to protect myself. And Jonathan Edwards has a book called, I think, the, um, something like The Nature of True Virtue. And in it, he compares common virtue with true virtue. And his argument is that common virtue is God's primary tool in restraining evil in the world right now. Uh, maybe not primary, but it's 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 the tool he uses that's available for everyone, whether they're a believer or not. Yeah. And common virtue, he says, basically, is we don't do certain things that we shouldn't do, but the motivation is falls into one of two categories, fear or pride. So we don't steal because we are afraid of going to jail. Um, we don't um, uh, we do not do certain behaviors because we're better than people who do those behaviors. It's yeah. pride, right? And while that can restrain the human heart and human behavior, it doesn't have the power to actually change the human heart, yep. right? So in both of those scenarios, what you love most is really yourself. Mm-hmm. With self-preservation, you're looking at... So, so if you obey, like I did as a kid for most of my life because I'm afraid of going to hell or afraid of missing a rapture or whatever it would be or afraid of disappointing my parents, even when I'm doing good things, in the center of my heart is me, right? Yeah. I lo- I, you're doing you know, them for you. Doing them for me in the end, yeah. And and then when I would do things like play my guitar and lead worship, but what I really wanted was for people to think I was a good worship leader or to respect me or to give me accolades and applause and yep. put me on their shoulders and carry me out of the service afterwards, <laughs> which happened. I mean, I, I lost count. I know. Multiple. It's, it's, it's weird that it still happens every <laughs> Sunday <laughs> after your sermon. I do ask for it. Though. We do schedule that in planning center. <laughs> The carrying out of the sanctuary we, pastor. I mean, we've become used to it now, but it was a little weird for the first couple of years yeah. of attending. Cleaning up the confetti afterwards is a whole other team's job. <laughs> but you know, I um, I so anyway, you know, through the through the ministry of of some wonderful uh, men and women, I began to realize, you know, the Prodigal God by Tim Keller was one of those kind of eye opening moments where yep. he unpacks the story of what's always been called to me the story of the prodigal son. But you know, he makes the very compelling case that's really two sons and it's the story of the lost sons because they're both lost and at mm. the end it's actually the one who kept the rules that's on the outside of the feast yeah and he's not lost because of his um he's not lo- lost in spite of his righteousness he's lost because of it yep. you know it's what keeps him out and so like you i began to realize i'm way more sinful than i understood in fact for most of my life the the worst thing about my sin was that I, the grossest thing about my sin was that I didn't think it was gross. You know, I knew I wasn't perfect, of course, and I knew I struggled, but I, I didn't have this sense of like, yeah, Jesus really had to die for those sinners. But for me, he just kind of, you know, so, Mm. so the way in which idolatry helps is it humbles you, right? Makes you realize the ways in which your heart wanders and is wicked, but it simultaneously increases your gratitude for what Jesus did. Yeah. Because if you're forgiven, Jesus taught this, forgiven little, love little, forgiven much, love much. Of course, he's not saying that some people are forgiven little. He's saying some people live as if they were forgiven little. Mm. And that was me, really, for most of my... And it's still an ongoing battle for me, of course, because I'm around you so much. I look at your life, and I think I haven't been forgiven as much as Jared has been forgiven. (laughs) True. So, yeah, that's very similar stories and, and, and... 
Edwards writing and Keller's preaching and, and other people like that um, helped me realize there's nothing I had done for most of my life to actually root out what Keller what what Edwards calls the fundamental source of your evil. Yeah, which is idolatry. And I think you just you just hit on it right there, the fundamental source. And and so here's practically how it's a game changer. If you're listening to this, is what it means is every sin, every behavior, good or bad is oftentimes motivated or attached to some root idol in your life mm-hmm. that's really your problem. So when if you and let's just take bad behaviors right now cuz they're a little bit easier to to address. Think about the sin that you've done in the last week or month or whatever. Maybe there's something that you're consistently struggling with. The problem that you have is not simply that behavior. The problem you have is all of those behaviors are rooted in an idol that you're worshiping and finding your identity in outside of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And unless you discover that, unless you unless you ask the why questions, which is how you dig down, right? You kind of dig down into your heart and go, "Well, why why am I offended by that? Why am I why am I upset about this? Why did I react that way?" Until you figure out what that root idol is and and what I would actually say is, and we're going to talk about this next episode, that there's four four root idols. And so you could, every single sin is rooted in one of these idols. And if you can't, if you don't discover what these idols are and primarily what maybe your heart tends to lean towards, because usually we have one or two that we tend to gravitate towards, you may change behavior, but you're never going to really solve the major issue of your heart. And so um, for me, this is this is the biggest thing. And, and the last thing I would say is this, and this is maybe a little controversial, but I actually think it's, it's until we understand this and our pursuit of identity, it's impossible to live a selfless life Hmm. because you referenced before, like everything you were doing was actually for you, right? Until you have an identity that's been given to you that you didn't earn. And now you're free and going, I don't, I'm actually secure in it and secure in it. Yeah. My life is now your life is free for the first time to actually serve other people. Before that, even the good things you do for the people around you, even the way you parent your kids, oftentimes, if you check your motivations, you're trying to be a good dad because you don't want to be a bad dad, right? You don't want to be perceived as that. Like often our motivations are still self-serving. And so um, without that gospel identity that transforms us, it's actually impossible to live a selfless life. We're, We're all selfish. Well, and I think considering who our audience is in some cases, it needs to be said that this can actually manifest in really terrible ways in full-time ministry, right? Yeah. A lot of people who listen to this are pastors or serving in local churches in some capacity. Um, and it needs to be said that you can, the same um, heart motivations that lead people to do horrible things can lead people to serve for years in a local church because of, and I don't want to give away what we're going to talk about on the next episode, but because of their over-desire for influence or control or approval or acceptance or power and they find that platform in a local church yep. and it will um, corrupt your heart it will make your ministry relatively fruitless you'll be stuck serving of course you're serving the wrong god you're not you're not doing ministry from a place of freedom there'll be no joy you will burn out um, i know burnout can happen for multiple reasons but this is certainly one of the root reasons why people burn out in ministry because they're looking for ministry to bring to them what Christ has already provided for them. Yeah. And instead of it being an outworking of who they are, it becomes a way of defining who they are. Um, that's true no matter where you work, 
but it's kind of uglier in ministry because you're surrounded by religious activity that cloaks mm. what's really happening in your heart. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, I feel this all the time, you know, and there's literally like even just yesterday, Sunday morning and during service as we were singing, I found myself just making a moment of like repentance, like, Lord, forgive me for like measuring the wrong things and thinking, you know, being focused on the wrong things and being distracted so easily by this, that and the other and right. bothered by this and wondering why Jared came in late again to service and actually you were on time yesterday and then your and then your son dinged the door and then it cost you a few minutes but you were you were there <laughs> oh god um, must have really made you feel bad about that one didn't he <laughs> well you text me and asked me if i knew whose car it was that's why i knew your timeline <laughs> otherwise i would have never known so i th- i think um i don't know where we're at in this episode if we need to wrap up or um i think when we start our next episode it would be good for us to start with the question with a list of like how do we identify our heart idols? Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll actually talk, we'll name four major ones, which we would call root idols or source idols. Yep. And then also we'll kind of unpack some surface idols because so there's these four source idols, but then there's all these surface idols that are actually a little easier to identify because mm-hmm. we have to do more work to get to the root, right? Just yeah. like digging out a, a tree. Yep. But be, above all of that, so source, surface, but even above the surface, there's some behavior and some attitudes and some emotional states that reveal hard yep. idols. And there's some key questions that we'll start our next episode with that you can ask yourself or ask somebody that you're discipling to help them begin to move closer towards um, the root. And of course, the whole purpose of identifying your idols is to replace them with a greater love, mm. a love for Jesus. Yeah. Insert the gospel. All right. Well, before we close, we're going to uh, end with a little portion called David's Eats where we not only help you become better leaders, but also better eaters, because that matters. Mm. And, um, you know, we're coming off this weight loss challenge. Today was the officially the last day, so we're free to put on as many pounds as we want. Thank you, Jesus. And, um, you know, you sent me a little picture this morning. I don't want to blow you up, but <laughs> you sent me a little picture this morning of what you were having for breakfast, and uh, it was a lot of donuts. And donuts are one of my favorite things. Yeah. So uh, 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 let's let's hear what's your what's your favorite donut? What's your I know I know you're not a sweet guy. You're more of a savory. But if you're gonna get some donuts, what are we getting here? So my favorite donut is like a like a sour cream donut, glazed sour cream donut. There's something about that tanginess of that type of. You know what I'm talking about? Have you had those? Yeah, yeah. Where they pipe in actual sour cream into the middle instead of. The- <laughs> That sounds terrible. <laughs> no, I, I'm guessing they somehow include sour cream in the batter. It yeah. has a little tanginess to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different. And I really love that. But the one I so some a wonderful couple in our church, uh, Claude and Laura, they went and celebrated. I think their 49th anniversary, uh, and they ended up out in Buffalo. And Buffalo has a famous. Um, donut shop called Paula's mm. and they offered to bring us back a dozen donuts and I prayed about it for 1.4 seconds and yeah. said yes please and they brought back these peanut donuts mm. and inside it's stuffed with cream like the white cream not yeah. the yellow cream and it's so intense and sweet I could only eat half of it if I had co- I didn't have coffee if I had coffee with me I probably could eat the whole thing where's the other half because uh, you, you know I love donuts <laughs> And actually, I believe the other day I dropped you off a, a dozen donuts. You did. And you did not yeah. reciprocate. Green Hills Grocery Store in Syracuse also has good donuts. Yeah. So I, I guess that's... But You're, my number one donut is like an old-fashioned kind of sour cream glazed donut. How okay. about you? Okay. Um, so I... Yeah, it depends. I grew up only on like Dunkin' Donuts because that's all we had. Oh, wow. So 
back then I would have said speaking of idolatry I would have said I'm a, I'm a Boston cream man which I still do love a Boston cream donut from it's funny you say that because that was my favorite when I was a kid really yeah but now um I do love um the so the peanut donut is like I don't know if that's unique to upstate but I never really encountered it much until I moved here hmm. um but it's pretty big up here but yeah I love I love the peanut donut I love um I love a chocolate glazed. I mean, I love it all. I, I, I love donuts. My favorite of all time is the coconut custard or whatever it's called yeah. at the donut plant in New York City. Yeah, coconut I would agree cream. with that. I would agree with that. That, that donut place is yep. incredible. Yeah, I love coconut donuts. And yeah, just just give me donuts, man. I love them all. Hey, everybody. Uh, we want to encourage you. Listen into the next episode when we release. We're going to go deep dive into this. We appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next Multiply Podcast.